about the future. You ever find yourself wondering what kind of world your kids or your grandkids or your great-grandkids will grow up in? What can we count on to give us any kind of confidence as we look to the future? So we come this morning to our next installment in John's letter. And it's a letter that was written a long, long time ago to the early church in the first century. But we've been finding that it speaks quite powerfully to our own lives here in the 21st century. It's a compelling letter. It's simple in structure, but it raises a lot of questions about our faith, about God, and about our place in this world. And so I thought, as I was preparing this, that I would share some questions that different people have posed to me over the years. And the names are made up, but the people and the conversations are real. I think of Howard, troubled by the fact that he keeps losing his temper with his wife and his kids. And he wonders, is there something wrong with him, with his face? And I think of Samuel, an older gentleman, who's followed the Lord for years, but he still isn't the man that he wants to be. And he wonders if he'll ever, ever be that man. I think of Ava, a teenage young lady, happy, but she wonders about all the other faiths out there. Is there one or is there many? I think about Emma, a 20-something young woman who was enjoying the, her first taste of what we might call the good life, her first full-time career and money and freedom. But she found herself wondering if a Christian can live with one foot in the world and the other in God's kingdom. And then there's Charlotte, a good wife, and Joshua, a diligent worker with a successful career, they're doing all the things that a Christian is supposed to be doing, reading their Bible, going to church. But where's the joy, the wonder, the impact? They wonder if they're missing something. And then I think about Olivia. Maybe she speaks for all of them and maybe even for us when she says she wants to believe, but sometimes she needs help believing. Is there anything that we can be certain of, she asks, in a world that is so unpredictable, so frightening at times? Well, fortunately, John wrote his letter to answer questions like these from real people like us. And the words of John are remarkably relevant today. He offers us security in the midst of uncertainty, truth in the midst of doubt, and hope in the time of struggle. The testimony or evidence from the Lord deepens our koinonia, that word we've been looking at that flows through the book of John, the word that we translate fellowship. God's testimony deepens our fellowship with him and with his people. Well, this word testimony, we're going to see it numerous times in our text today. To testify means to bear witness, to affirm, to serve as evidence of proof. I heard a story about a police officer who pulled over a driver 
and informed him that he was speeding. And just then, his wife, who was seated next to him, said, I told you, you have to drive slowly until you get your license. <laughs> well, of course, the policeman was a bit surprised and said, Sir, are you driving without a valid license? And then his daughter, trying to defend her father, said, Officer, please consider my dad. He gets excited when he's had a bit too much to drink. Well, then the policeman was very interested and said, are you driving a vehicle without a license while intoxicated, sir? And then just then, his son in the back seat shouts out, I knew we wouldn't get far in this stolen car. <laughs> and so suddenly, the father has testimony, but from three unwanted witnesses. Well, today in our message, we're going to learn about some testimony, but it's the testimony of a true witness and a desired witness, a much-to-be-heeded witness, not a human witness, but God himself. The testimony or evidence from the Lord serves to deepen our fellowship with him and with his people in at least three ways that I want to look at with you this morning. And so let's take a look at these. First, the testimony of God helps us to defeat doubt, to defeat doubt. John has just presented his readers with a wonderful truth. Jesus is indeed the Christ of God. You might remember that John made this claim at the very beginning of this letter. In the first two verses, matter of fact, we're going to look at those on the screen, where he says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was revealed and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was revealed to us. And so John is in essence saying, we know that Jesus is the Christ. We know that he is God the Son. We heard him. We saw him with our own eyes. We gazed upon him. We examined him. We even touched him. John is giving his eyewitness testimony. And now here in chapter 5, Towards the end of his letter, John says, but, you know, if you don't believe us, you can ask God himself. And so let's take a look at verses 6 through 8 of our text this morning. In these verses, in chapter 5, John turns to the testimony of God himself concerning his son. And John does this to refute some of the false and heretical teachings of his day. We've talked about those throughout this letter so far. There were false teachers that had infiltrated the church and were creating all kinds of havoc because they were questioning the reality of Jesus as a human being or the reality of his power. They had all kinds of different ideas that were mis, uh, misguided and evil at times. And so John writes to convince his readers that Jesus truly is the Messiah, the Christ of God. These false teachers, one of the teachings they taught was that when the dove had descended on Jesus at his baptism, they said that is when he became the Messiah. And, and then sometime before Jesus was nailed to the cross, they, they said the Spirit left Jesus. Well, that's a lie. 
That's not true at all. And so John writes in verse 6, This is the one who came by water and the blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. John wants his readers to understand that Jesus wasn't only the Christ when he was baptized. And so he came with water and he came with the blood. Not not only the Christ when he was baptized, but he was the Christ when he suffered and when he died on the cross for our sins. That is the core truth of Christianity. And to deny that denies Christianity itself. And then John goes on in the second part of verse 6, and he says, if you don't believe us, uh, ask God. And so he says, it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. The Spirit is the truth. So John says, you know, you might have a hard time believing us disciples. We're just guys, men, fallible capable of error, but God, God is infallible. God cannot lie. God is the greatest witness of all. And so John says in verse 7 there that there are three that testify. Three witnesses. Why three? Well, the law of Moses taught that in order for a truth to be established legally, there had to be two or three witnesses. And so John says, let me give you three witnesses. In verse 8, first, the Spirit. That Holy Spirit that was active at the baptism of Jesus, but also active at the cross. Also active in the miracles that Jesus produced throughout his lifetime. All of that is one witness. And then John says there are two other witnesses. The water and the blood. And these three are all in agreement In other words, their testimony is true. And what are they testifying about? They're testifying that Jesus is the Son of God. They're testifying that he is the Messiah, the anointed one. God who became flesh and lived among men. Jesus is God in the flesh. And then in verse 10, John writes this statement. He says, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. And so not only did the Spirit testify externally all through the life of Jesus, but he testifies internally in the heart of the believer. This is really important. I want you to understand this. If you are a true Christian, No one needs to convince you of this. You know because the Spirit of God confirms it in your heart. The power of God's Spirit is there to give us confidence, confirmation, testimony. A university professor condescendingly confronted a student who proclaimed her belief in Jesus. He said, there are are many throughout history who claim to be God. How can you be sure who tells the truth? Which one of any of these can you believe? And the girl, without hesitation, responded, I believe the one who rose from the dead. Confirmation, testimony, 
The emphasis in the first half of 1 John 5 is about trusting Jesus. Is his word and his life and his ministry trustworthy? A person with authentic faith in Jesus moves from a position of doubt to one of trust. And that trust then compels that person to follow Jesus Christ in obedience. That person is then born of God and is able to overcome the world. Continuous belief in Jesus is basic to making it through this life. We experience true fellowship and we defeat doubt because within us is the testimony of God's Holy Spirit. A very real testimony. Well, the next testimony of God that helps us is the testimony that helps us to know the truth. Not just to defeat doubt, but to know the truth. Christians have always struggled with doubt. But today, in our postmodern 21st century world, it seems harder than ever to be sure of anything. We are surrounded by doubt. A few years ago, Drew Faust became president of Harvard University. She is named by Forbes magazine as one of the 30 most powerful women in the world. And in her inaugural speech, she called attention to the crest of the college. She pointed out that the motto, the one-word motto of Harvard University, veritas, which is Latin for truth. And she, she pointed out that that motto originally affirmed the school's quest for eternal truths and unassailable realities. But then she went on to announce a new understanding of that quest. Truth is an aspiration, she said, not a possession. In this, we challenge those who would embrace such certainties. We must commit ourselves to the uncomfortable position of doubt. Well, when the most highly regarded intellectual institution in the world is telling us that we really can't know anything for certain, it feels like the ground beneath our feet is giving way and there's no place to stand. If the folks at Harvard don't know anything, what hope is there for the rest of us? And that's why John's words are so relevant for today. He offers us certainty. Look with me down at verse 13. John says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That word know is very important to John. It appears more often in this chapter than in almost any other chapter in the New Testament. Now, there are actually two words for no in the scriptures. In this verse, and in most of the time in this chapter, he uses the word that describes the state of knowing rather than the process of knowing. Let me give you an example. When I say, I know I am a husband, I'm declaring something that I know to be true beyond a shadow of doubt. I remember 
standing in front of our friends and family 30 plus years ago with my wife. I remember being married. Somewhere I even have a piece of paper that proves that. I wear this ring to signify that. I know that I am a husband. That is the state of knowing. I'm declaring that I know beyond a shadow of doubt. But then, what if I were to say, I know what it means to be a husband? Well, that's a little different, isn't it? You see, that's a knowledge that I am still acquiring and growing into, even after 30 years. One kind of knowing is complete and factual. The other is progressive and experiential. Now, both kinds of knowing are true in Christianity. But it's the first knowing, the certain kind of knowing that John is emphasizing here. I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. And what is it that John wants the early Christians and us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt? Well, let me, let me give you at least three things. The first thing he wants us to know is that eternal life is possible. That expression, eternal life, it literally means the life of the ages. In other words, a life for this age and the age to come. The word eternal speaks to both the quantity and the quality of life. And so eternal life is longer in that it goes on forever, but it's also deeper in that it encompasses the full range of our potential. Eternal life is real life. The life that we were created to live and that we ought to long to live. In fact, in the original language of verse 12, John doesn't just refer to it as life, but he says, the life. Let's look at this in verse 12. The one who has the son has the life. The one who does not have the son does not have the life. John doesn't just refer to it as life, but the life, suggesting that any other kind of life falls short. So the first thing John wants us to know, to know with certainty, is that eternal life a life of quality and purpose is real and it is possible. And then the second thing he wants us to realize and to know with certainty is that this life that he's talking about is found only in Jesus Christ. This is one of the false teachings that he was combating. That we can be fulfilled by outside knowledge, other things beyond Jesus. But you see, real life is only found in Jesus. It's not something that we find deep down inside ourselves. It's not something that we find as we discover our personal truth or chasing after our best life. No. It's not something that we find out there in the world through any education or philosophy or experience. Jesus Christ brought this life to us when he came to earth and when he lived it for us. He showed us what it means to live life in full. In John's gospel, he quotes Jesus as saying, 
I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. The abundant life, the full life that can only be found in Jesus, in fellowship with God and with his people. The world had never truly seen life as it was meant to be until Jesus came and lived it among us. You think of all the centuries, all the millennia that took place before Jesus came. None of those people understood the life. They didn't understand it because they hadn't seen it. But when Jesus came, he came to show us the life. To live it out. And so logically, the only place to find real life is in the one who actually lived it, Jesus Christ. Eternal life is possible. It's only found in Jesus. And then the third thing John wants us to know beyond a doubt is that if you have the Son, you have the life. If you have the Son, you have the life. That's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? Having the sun, having the life. We know what it means to have an object, but how do you have a person? Well, to have a person is to be in some kind of relationship with that person. When we say, I have a spouse or I have a friend, we're declaring a certain kind of koinonia, fellowship. But it makes no sense to say, I have a stranger, because there's no real relationship there, right? There's no definition. So to have Jesus Christ is to be in fellowship with him, a relationship that is defined by belief and trust and obedience. And whoever has the Son, John says, has the life. I want you to think back to the words that were spoken by that Harvard president I mentioned. Truth is an aspiration, she said, not a possession. Well, not according to John. When he says, whoever has the son has the life, he uses a word that literally means to possess, to own. There's a big difference between aspiring to something and possessing something. We can aspire to all kinds of things, can't we? A better job, a newer car, a bigger house. We can have aspirations for success or respect. We can investigate those things and read about them. We can even imagine what life might be like someday in all of our aspirations. But we can't do anything with that house or car or job until we actually possess it. John is telling us that eternal life, real life, isn't just something to aspire to, to long for, or to wonder about. I can't stand it when I hear Christian people say, I hope I get to heaven. I hope I make it. No. Heaven is not something to aspire to. It is something that you can possess today. 
something that you have now, if you have called Jesus Christ your Lord and have been born again, you do possess it right now. And so the testimony of God helps us to know the truth and to defeat doubt in this life. And then finally, the testimony of God helps us to overcome the world. To overcome the world. Look back to verse 4 in our text. John says, For whoever has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. As Christians, we are fighting an ongoing battle against the world and the flesh and the devil. We know this from John's particular choice of word that is translated into our English word, overcome. That word overcome is a word from the ancient Greek world of armed combat. A word that means to gain victory or to get beyond the enemy lines. The forces of the devil, the flesh, our sinful desires, and the world, the cosmos around us, this system we live in. All of that is under the leadership of Satan. And these things surround the believer and they incessantly wage war against us trying to ruin our understanding of truth trying to steal away our fellowship and our testimony. But John says in verse 4 that the Christian overcomes the world. And we have to have a little bit of a, an English and Greek lesson here to help us understand this. That first occurrence of the word overcome. For whoever has born of God overcomes the world. That first occurrence is in the present tense, which tells us that the Christian is constantly overcoming the world. In other words, victory over the world is the norm for the Christian. Defeat, though it may happen sometimes, is the exception, not the rule. Because whoever has been born of God overcomes the world. Now, the second occurrence in the second part of the verse, that's in a different tense called the aorist tense. And the aorist tense is, we might say, a snapshot of something that occurred in the past. So John says at the end of verse 4 that this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. In other words, our faith in Christ has already made victory for us over the world and the flesh and the devil. It's a done deal. So think of it this way. Each and every time that someone becomes a follower of Christ, when they, when they die in the watery grave of baptism and when they rise again to new life in Christ, when they're born again, they are a winner, a victor, an overcomer at that moment. And if somebody were there with a camera to take a picture, click, it's there. You have overcome the world. It's real. It's already happened. It's a point in time that we can look back to and say, I exercised faith and obedience and I received the greatest gift of all. But then, as we all are aware of, every day, every hour, 
Sometimes every minute, a believer makes a decision to turn away from sin or temptation in this life. And each time we do that, each time we say yes to Jesus and no to sin, we have overcome. We have burst through the enemy lines victorious. And again, if we could take a picture of that moment, we'd say, this is what's happening in my life. Click. We could share it on Facebook or Instagram. I have overcome. If you're a Christian, you are an overcomer. And though you might lose a few skirmishes along the way, a conflict here or there during your life on earth, the battle has already been won for you at the cross. Verse 4 speaks of a fight that is in progress and a warfare that is constantly being waged, but it also speaks of a triumph that is assured when we confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so then John asks this question, kind of a rhetorical question in verse 5. He says, who is the one who overcomes the world? Who is this overcomer? It's the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So if you are a Christian, you have overcome the world. That means the forces of the devil and the flesh and the world system around you, even though they're incessantly waging war, trying to ruin your fellowship and your testimony, if you have that heart belief, that faith in the work of Jesus and all that it implies, you have gained victory. You have gained victory. Do you know what the, the Greek word for victory is here? I think you'll get a kick out of this. It's the word Nike. Poorly pronounced Nike. Nike. Yeah, the shoe company. So maybe it would do us some good to run out today and buy a pair of those fancy tennis shoes or a t-shirt with that cool swoosh on it to remind us of what we can do. Now, Nike, what's their catchphrase? Just do it. Just do it. But you know what that implies? It implies our own power to walk as we should. But as a Christian, as a Christian, our catchphrase is do it. Do it through God's past victory, Christ crucified, and his present power. Christ within us. Do it. You know, about 10 years ago, Nike, the company, released a controversial television commercial. And in the commercial, it simply shows a series of people who have one thing in common, some sort of a nasty injury or scar. So in the commercial, there's a cowboy with a huge scar around his eye, and then he takes off his eye patch, and there's something wrong with the eye itself. There's a, a, a guy, a, a, some sort of an athlete, and it zooms in on his ear, and he's got this big bulbous growth coming out of his ear. There's another that is shown, these terribly calloused feet. There are others with a variety of physical deformities and brokenness. There's no narration, no explanation at all, simply that swoosh and the words, just do it. But the key to this unique commercial lies in the background music. There's Joe Cocker singing, You are so beautiful to me. 
You see, to these athletes, the wrestler with the cauliflower ear and the surfer with the shark bite and the, the bull rider who's got one eye that's been gouged out by a bull, their injuries are beauty marks. And to their fans, these athletes are beautiful because of their scars. Friends, God's grace, God's grace is just as jarring and controversial as that television commercial. Because our beauty is not found in us. It's found in him. He looks down at us, injured and blind and scarred from all the junk in this world. And he sings to us, you are so beautiful to me. That's what God is singing to you today. We are victorious, defeating the doubts this world has thrown us at us, knowing, knowing with complete certainty the truth, not any truth, but the truth, the only truth, and overcoming the lies and the brokenness that the prince of this world loves to strew about. So today, may we find great comfort and strength and assurance in the testimony, the witness of our Heavenly Father as we pursue true fellowship, koinonia, with Him and with His bride, the church. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the power of your word and the power of your spirit that lives within us. Father, thank you that you give us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. That is your promise, your guarantee. Father, help us to believe that truth, not just sometimes, but all the time. And Father, when we are swayed by the disappointments of this world and the doubt of those around us. Father, may we come back to what we know is true and right, what is good and lovely. We thank you that Jesus lived so that we could see what the life looks like. And now, Father, we thank you that you give us your help through your spirit so that we can pursue that same life together as brothers and sisters on a journey seeking fellowship with you and enjoying fellowship with one another. Bless us today, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing this closing song, as we remember about the truth, the truth of eternal life. God bless you today.